Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 188. We'll continue in the Psalms with a brief summary of chapters 139 through 142 and follow with some thoughts about the nature of humans and the temptation to do evil. Psalm 139 begins, quote, Lord, you searched me and you know. It is you who know when I sit and I rise. You fathom my thoughts from afar. Nothing is outside the scope of God's all-seeing eye. Quote, darkness itself will not darken for you, and the night will light up like the day. The dark and the light will be one. You cannot die. I see This has the potential to be stifling. What am I supposed to do? You won't answer my calls. You change your number. I mean, I'm not going to be ignored, Dan. But the flip side of that is genuine closeness. God knows everything, so you don't have to front or dissimulate. Quote, my frame was not hidden from you. When I was made in a secret place, knitted in the utmost depths, my unformed shape your eyes did see. And in your book, all was written down. So in a total 180 from where the psalm began, the poet asks, quote, Search me, God, and know my heart. Probe me and know my mind. And see if a vexing way be in me. And lead me on the eternal way. Psalm 140 brings us back to a common theme with the poet. He is asking God to rescue him, to deliver him from the evil plans his enemies have made against him. Quote, The haughty laid down a trap for me. And with cords, they spread out a net. Despite the prevalence of enemies, their stinging words and plots, the poet remains faithful. Quote, I know that Adonai will take up the cause of the lowly, the case of the needy. Psalm 141 continues on the theme of the wicked and evil. The problem with wicked people is not just that they suck and they make the lives of good people impossible, but that wickedness and evil tempt the poet to be wicked and evil as well. Give yourself to the dark side. To this, the poet prays, quote, Incline not my heart to an evil word to plot wicked acts with wrongdoing men, and let me not feast on their delicacies. But despite all the best intentions, the temptation remains. The poet concludes with the prayer, quote, May the wicked fall in their nets. I alone shall go on. All Psalm 142 wants is to be heard, quote, With my voice I shout to Adonai, with my voice I plead to Adonai, I pour out my speech before him, my distress before him I tell. And what does that poet tell? Of the wicked, again, who are trying to pursue and destroy him. The Psalm's superscription situates the poet in a cave, which leads one to recall David's desperate moments in 1 Samuel 22 when he took refuge in a cave to hide from Shaul. It seems David's prayers were answered then. The poet hopes for a similar positive result. Psalm 143 picks up this theme of a hopeful outcome, but it's not based on the merits of the case but out of mercy and kindness. Quote, Adonai, hear my prayer, hearken to my pleas. In your faithfulness answer me, in your bounty. Do not come into judgment with your servant, for no living thing is acquitted before you. That's a pretty bleak take on the state of humanity, but the poet is not overwhelmed by cynicism and pessimism in this moment. Though he is hounded by enemies, he's faithful still. Quote, let me hear your kindness in the morning, for in you I trust. Let me know the way I should go, for to you I lift up my being. And on that note of uplift, here endeth the lesson.
Chapter one of Rutger Bregman's new book, Humankind, begins as follows. This is a book about a radical idea, an idea that's long been known to make rulers nervous, an idea denied by religions and ideologies, ignored by the news media, and erased from the annals of world history. At the same time, it's an idea that's legitimized by virtually every branch of science, one that's corroborated by evolution and confirmed by everyday life, an idea so intrinsic to human nature that it goes unnoticed and gets overlooked. If only we had the courage to take it more seriously. It's an idea that might just start a revolution, turn society on its head. Because once you grasp what it really means, it's nothing less than a mind-bending drug that ensures you'll never look at the world the same again. So what is this radical idea? That most people, deep down, are pretty decent. Later in the chapter, he shares what Dutch biologist Frans de Waal calls veneer theory. That is the notion that, quote, civilization is nothing more than a thin veneer that will crack at the merest provocation. And we feel this theory is true deep down in our bones. Defund or abolish the police, and within seconds, it's the purge. This is your emergency broadcast system, announcing the commencement of the annual purge. At the siren, all emergency services will be suspended for 12 hours. Your government thanks you for your participation. In fact, Bregman argues over the hundreds of pages to follow that the opposite is true. We humans are actually our best selves when crisis hits, when the bombs fall or the floodwaters rise or the pandemic spreads. So how do we account for the persistent belief that homo homini lupus, a man, is wolf to another man? Well, Bregman has some thoughts about that too. You're familiar with the placebo effect. Well, there's also an opposite effect called the nocebo effect. If you're told taking a fake pill will make you sick, chances are it will. If you're told about a drug's serious side effects, even if you're given a fake pill, you might experience them. This effect hasn't been widely tested for the obvious reasons. You can't really mess with people like that. So Bregman basically argues that our grim view of humanity is also a nocebo, and that we, quote, by nature as children on an uninhabited island when war breaks out, when crisis hits, have a powerful preference for our good side. He revisits many of the anecdotes, stories, and histories that provide, at least in late capitalist modern times, the scientific basis, and I put that in quotes, for our belief that people are just garbage. As if centuries of religious dogma weren't enough. <laughs> I cast you out! Bregman takes a second look at the civilization in Rapa Nui, what we white folks like to call Easter Island, who, as Jared Diamond and others recounted in their works, used to boast a population of around 15,000, but according to these accounts, avarice and hubris eventually led to that civilization's destruction. Production of the Moai, or those large monolithic human figures, resulted in mass deforestation, soil erosion, crop failures, and famine. Civil war then erupted, leaving a few thousand inhabitants in a sorry state when Dutch explorer Jacob Roggeveen arrived in 1722. Except that the account provided by Roggeveen doesn't mention any of these cataclysmic events. He described the people of Rapa Nui as friendly and healthy, muscular, with white teeth. They weren't emaciated and starving. Just the opposite, they were quick to offer the Dutchman food. Bregman goes on to trace how the narrative of calamity evolved based on the recent research of environmental biologist John Borsma. The conventional story about Rapa Nui starts to unravel. 
First, the population never reached 15,000. Archaeology, supported by statistical analysis, offers up a much humbler figure, something like 2,200. As for the mass deforestation, Borsema has a more banal explanation, the Polynesian rat. They came across on boats, most probably with the first folks to arrive from Polynesia, and without natural predators, they ate their way across the island, feeding on the seeds of the trees, which actually made it easier for the folks on Rapa Nui because they could convert the deforested land more easily into farmland. I could go on, but I think you get the point. The story Europeans have told about Rapa Nui, the cautionary tale it's supposed to teach us about hubris, arrogance, avarice, climate change, civilizational decline, etc., doesn't really stand up to scrutiny. I mean, it's a good narrative if you're looking for one about how humans are garbage, but it's not based on real evidence. Bregman also looks at that classic work of fiction, William Golding's Lord of the Flies, which was assigned reading when I was in middle school. The story of civilized English schoolboys who descend into violence and barbarism after their plane crashes and they wash up on an abandoned Pacific island belies a real story of six Tongan boys, students at St. Andrew's boarding school in Tonga's capital, who were bored one day in June of 1965 and decided to snatch a boat and sail to Fiji. The oldest in the group was 16, the youngest was 13. Their story is an amazing one, but the one thing missing from it was that they didn't descend into bullying or barbarism by the time they were rescued. These six boys set up a small commune with a food garden, hollowed out tree trunks to store rainwater, they had an outdoor gym, a badminton court, chicken pens, and an eternal flame which the boys tended to in shifts. When one of the boys slipped and fell off a cliff, the other boys carefully climbed their way down and helped him back up to the top. They set his legs using sticks and leaves and did his work for him while he recuperated. Bregman also digs a little deeper into the story of Kitty Genovese. This is a classic one you surely have heard before. March 13th, 1964, 3.15 a.m., Kitty Genovese parks her car about a block away from her apartment in Queens and begins to walk home when she's attacked minutes later. Her screams carry through the neighborhood. Some apartment lights turn on. Someone calls out, let that girl alone, but no one comes outside. No one comes to Kitty's aid. The attack continues. Only at 3.50 a.m. does someone put in a call to the police. But when the cops arrive minutes later, it's too late. That's when the caller infamously admitted, I didn't want to get involved. Two weeks after Kitty was murdered... New York Times editor Abe Rosenthal assigned a front-page story headline, 37 who saw murderer didn't call the police. Later editions referenced 38 witnesses. That single story etched itself into the American psyche. New York City installed the 911 system as a direct response. Coverage of Kitty's murder spawned the coining of a psychological phenomenon known as the bystander effect. Except that meta-analyses about that same effect, the bystander effect, determines something counter to the narrative we've been fed for almost 60 years. When you have a life-threatening emergency, and if the bystanders can communicate with each other, then the opposite of what expected happens. The more bystanders there are, the more helping there is, not less. In 90% of cases, people help each other. And the actual details of Kitty Genovese's murder reveal that the 38 people noted in the headline were not eyewitnesses. At most, they heard some noise outside. Only two individuals heard and saw what happened. The first was a bit of a loner who headed out for Jews. He didn't care or intervene. The second was a closeted gay man who was worried that his involvement in the publicity would generate without him and ruin his life. 
He was also drunk that night. He called a friend to ask what to do, and the friend told him to call the cops, but he didn't want to call the cops from his place, so he went next door to wake up a neighbor. Once the neighbor, Sophia Farrar, heard that Kitty was attacked, she rushed out the door. Her husband was still putting on his pants when he found his wife cradling Kitty in her arms when she died. When journalists began to look deeper into the details, they realized the New York Times account didn't hold up. But they were met with a quick and decisive rebuke. Abe Rosenthal told one reporter, quote, Do you realize that this story has become emblematic of a situation in America? It's become the subject of sociology courses, books, and articles. Bregman also points out that the coda to the Kitty Genovese story also highlights how wrong its initial message was. Five days after the murder, a Queens resident noticed a stranger on his street coming out of his neighbor's house with a television. When the resident confronted the stranger, the stranger said he was a mover. So the resident went back inside, checked with another neighbor to see if one of their neighbors was moving. When they figured out that no one was moving, that the stranger in fact was a burglar, they disabled the stranger's vehicle and called the police. The stranger not only confessed to the burglary, but also to Kitty Genovese's murder. Her killer was not caught because of sleuthing or detective work, but because two bystanders intervened. This story didn't make the papers. Bregman also interrogates other famous stories that lead us to our sad conclusion about humans being garbage. The Stanford experiments, where students were randomly divided into guards and prisoners, and within hours the guards began to brutalize their former classmates, it seems that Philip Zimbardo, the psychologist conducting the experiment, encouraged the guards to be harsh so he could use the results to argue for prison reforms. Bregman also looks again at the Milgram experiments, where participants were ordered to shock test subjects who gave wrong answers on a quiz. The popular take was that the experiment proved humans are obedient and will do terrible things if ordered. That explains why mild-mannered Germans carried out the Shoah. In fact, the experiment began during the final week of the Eichmann trial in Israel. Except that when you look at the data, you can explain it a different way. Folks generally went along with the man in the gray coat. They wanted to be helpful. They wanted to cooperate. He seemed authoritative and trustworthy. He was a scientist, after all. The experiment was being conducted in a lab at Yale University, a respected institution. Perhaps what they were doing would help the scientists make a discovery that could actually help more people. So they went along with administering lower voltage jolts without incident. However, when the man in the gray suit eventually ordered the individual to administer the highest volt shock, most participants in the study didn't obey. So why did Eichmann carry out Hitler's final solution? Was he just a monster like the prosecutors claimed, or was he just like everyone else, as Hannah Arendt would claim? Just following orders, or in the case of the Milgram experiments, just following instructions. Evil is banal, she would argue. Everyone is capable of it. Milgram seemed to support that theory. But, if you look at the results again, you will see that folks are obedient to a point. They will also do a little evil because they believe they were doing good, but getting them to the next level by simply ordering them won't work. To get basically decent people to do truly evil things requires some serious indoctrination and manipulation. But why do we have to be indoctrinated and manipulated to do evil stuff? Shouldn't that be encoded into our DNA already? Well, it seems to be. Well, Bregman has an answer for that too. We breed for friendliness. 
That is, from an evolutionary perspective, we are decent and get along with each other. And what's more, one of the byproducts of that evolutionary preference for friendliness is intelligence. But an even more important uh, byproduct is the ability to learn from each other. Having whites in our eyes apparently also helps because it lets us follow the direction of the people that we're talking to. So, we are a fairly decent species, and because we are nice, we live in groups, and we're able to learn from each other and achieve things that other species of animals cannot, like building the pyramids, or shooting a rocket to the moon, or slicing bread. But what about prison brutality or concentration camps? Only humans build them. It seems that mechanism that makes us friendly to our friends also makes us unfriendly to our foes. In other words, we feel most connected to people who are most like us. And because of our intelligence, we can indoctrinate, manipulate, and dehumanize those unlike us to the point that we can kill them, all the while convinced that we're doing a good thing. The poet also affirms this view of humanity. He has de dedicated more than a handful of psalms to decrying his foes and haters. They are bad, bad people. But he, the poet, his default position is not wickedness or evil. He's fundamentally decent as are most people, he would say, an imperfect, flawed human whose imperfections and flaws are readily seen by God, but fundamentally decent and long-suffering. Perhaps it is conceit or lack of self-awareness, but throughout the Psalms, even though he portrays his pursuers as vicious and relentless, he doesn't tell us about all of his efforts to avenge himself against them. Instead, he asks God to intervene and save him. And he reminds God how faithful he is to God and God's ways. He indulges in some revenge fantasies a little bit, but in the end, he's a man of faith and perseverance, not John Wick. What makes his exploration of this predicament unique is the acknowledgement in Psalm 141 that the wicked and evil lifestyle is so alluring. The poet, as the psalm depicts, cowers in a cave, hiding from Shaul's pursuers. I'm sure he would much rather be in an air-conditioned palace instead, safe and secure from his foes, lounging on silks and furs. Who wouldn't? And what if the price for that security and comfort was secured by trampling on some folks you don't know? It's a price you pay once, and then you push that to the back of your mind. There are other distractions. And the persistent groans of the oppressed? Well, you know, musicians can play louder to drown it out. And the sad faces of the orphan children who don't have enough to eat, well, you build a wall and you keep all the unpleasantness on the other side of it. People are fundamentally decent, but people are also fond of routines and the normal. People can get used to anything, especially things that are aggrandizing and comfortable. And that's what's missing in all the examples Bregman brings to support his assertion about basic human decency. The opposite for him is terrible and unappealing. Who wants to be the savage bullies in Lord of the Flies? Who looks at the prison experiment and says, gee, I'd love to be a guard. No one wants to be Eichmann. For Bregman, when you're looking over at the bad people, what you see are some folks who are truly monstrous, which is rare, I hope, or folks who get swept along by aforesaid monsters into doing bad things because they're being amenable or being manipulated. Do they reap any extrinsic rewards of wickedness? Well, does it matter? Is this take Pollyanna-ish or naive? Bregman acknowledges that his book is, quote, intended to change that because what seems unreasonable, unrealistic, and impossible today can turn out to be inevitable tomorrow. It's time, he says, for a new realism. It's time for a new view of humankind. 
I think the poet would agree with him. The poet, however, would ground that new realism about people in his faith in God. As he concludes in Psalm 142, quote, Bring me out of the prison to acclaim your name, for the righteous will draw round me when you requite me. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently, it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning find this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 189, when we continue in Psalms with chapters 143 through 146.